and Betts Gallery featuring custom framing, prints, posters, and monthly exhibits of original art. Open weekdays 10 to 5 or by appointment at 96 Main Street, Belfast, 338-6465 or thebelfastframer.com. The WERU News Report, an independent alternative look at the local news with your host Amy Brown, Wednesday afternoons at 4, only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. WERU health-related programming is made possible in part by the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages at all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, Deergo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. Information presented on health-related programs on WERU is not meant to be taken as medical advice. Please talk with your health care provider if you have any questions or concerns. Support for WERU comes from Katahdin Pediatric Dentistry, providing treatment in all aspects of oral health care for infants, children, adolescents, and patients with special needs. Located in Bangor, KatahdinPediatricDentistry.com. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman, is up next. Good morning. Hi, I'm Rhonda Feynman. This is Healthy Options. And the subject of today's program on Healthy Options is a timely one, ticks and Lyme disease. And we'll also talk about other tick, uh, tick-borne co-infections. We have two guests today both with extensive and truly impressive credentials. I can only share some of them with you because otherwise, you know, the whole show, these are very impressive individuals here. Beatrice M. Santier, doctor. Um, Dr. Santier is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and a member of the American College of Physicians. She's board certified in both internal me- medicine and pediatrics. She came to Maine 25 years ago through the National Health Service Corps, and for the past 17 years, she's racked up thousands of hours investigating Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders. She currently participates on the State of Maine Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup and is a member of the Maine Medical Association and the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, or how do you say that, eyelids? Eyelids. Eyelids. Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders. She's done that to professional and community groups throughout New England. She's given testimony before the Maine legislature concerning Lyme disease in the state of Maine as well. And our second guest, Constance Happy Dickey, is a, a registered nurse. She's from Hamden, Maine, and she worked at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor for 25 years. Since 1999, she's had a special interest in Lyme and related diseases and has spent much time and energy researching tick-borne diseases. Um, Happy Dickey was on the board of directors of um, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society from 2001 to 2007. She facilitates support groups for people with Lyme, both in person in Maine and online. And she is also an advocate for patients with Lyme disease. She's traveled extensively with Dr. Santier, educating medical personnel and the public about Lyme disease. Happy Dickey is a founding member and board member of Maine Lyme, a newly formed nonprofit dedicated to awareness and prevention through education and advocacy. 
Welcome to Healthy Options, Options Dr. Beatrice Santier, and Happy Dickey. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Glad to be here. Great. Um, we're going to have um, some links, that we'll, things that we can be talking about. So if anyone is, uh, you don't have to be on Facebook, but if you go to www.facebook.com-werufm, you can see uh, some of the things that we're going to be referring to as, as the show progresses. So we'll just keep that in mind. So here we are, very timely. We'll talk about um, all sorts of how timely it is in a, in a few minutes. But what is Lyme disease? You know, let's just start right, right at the beginning. Well, Lyme disease is an infectious disease caused by the bite of an infected tick. And um, it, it's of concern because in its earliest stages, although some people have very few symptoms, if it's left untreated, it can often progress to some very complicated and difficult to diagnose and treat um, problems for individuals who get it. And it's important to talk about it because it's potentially preventable. And we want to talk about that as, as well. Um, what, what are the things to look for when, if, if you're out in, in the woods and, and such? There are two things, I guess, what I'm asking. I'm asking a little bit about prevention, but let's kind of talk about what it is if, if you know you have Lyme disease or how would you know that you have Lyme disease? Well, that's a very good question. Often one of the hallmark features of early Lyme disease is a rash. And the rash occurs at the site of the tick bite, but most people who get Lyme actually never see the tick. Um, so tick bites are a whole category of their own. Uh, the rash most commonly is actually a uniformly red rash that expands, but the classic rash, the one that everybody knows about, is, a, is called a bullseye rash, and that's because it takes on almost a target appearance with a central kind of clearing and a red rim. Um, it would be very nice if the classic rash was the common rash, but it absolutely isn't. So people really need to be aware that uh, a, an expanding red rash it should alert them during tick season to um, problems with Lyme. And that's often associated with what we call flu-like symptoms, that sort of achiness, fatigue, uh, fever, stiff neck, headache, just feelings of getting the flu um, with or without a rash. Because although we say the rash happens fairly commonly, that's true, but not everyone who gets Lyme gets a rash. So you're looking for those kinds of symptoms. And um, Happy, did you have you been in practice working with Lyme people, or is this more as the support group? Aspect? I do mostly volunteer work, um, mm -hmm. helping Lyme patients um, try to find out if that's indeed what they have. If they suspect they have it, you know, we um, have some things that we refer people to to study and to read and to research and to um, help them work with their doctors to work up and find out if they have any other issues going on that could cause their problems. And, and if they truly think they have Lyme disease, then through our support groups um, and our outreach work, we can help them find appropriate doctors. And so um, there's just a, so it's so rich what you just said. So let's break it apart a little bit. Um, so someone is starting to feel feverish. So you have the flu. Those symptoms go away. What, what happens next? It can affect all different kinds of systems, wouldn't you say? That, I mean, how, why would that be a, a question? Why, how come we don't know if someone has Lyme disease? Yeah. 
that's a more complicated question than, right. than you might imagine. Um, interestingly, if we don't treat Lyme disease early, treat it early and aggressively, most people do extremely well. The disease is uh, wiped out and you go on to lead a normal and happy life, at least as normal and happy as it was before. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, if we don't treat or if we inadequately treat, people can go on to develop later symptoms. And that's why it's particularly important to prevent or to recognize and diagnose early and treat early and aggressively. The later complications um, are multi-system and multi-symptom kinds of uh, uh, illness manifestation. And it includes, but isn't limited to, arthritis, that is swelling and redness of some of the joints, especially the larger joints. Um, it can involve the nervous system uh, both the brain and its functions, so thinking, memory, uh, concentration, and and just basic function in the central nervous system, but also um, sensory kinds of problems in the peripheral nervous system, like sensitivity to light and sound, uh, odd feelings in the extremities, uh, funny feelings in the skin, um, just various what we call neuropathy. Now, a lot of people have heard that term more recently than ever before. And, and there are many causes for a number of these symptoms, but Lyme disease absolutely has to be on the list. So you can, you know, having the flu once a month is not normal. Right. So you go to, where do you go? Do you, you go to a physician? What, what, what do we, you know? Come well, to my office, I have some ideas. But. I think, you, you know, people often have a primary care provider whom they identify for their health care, and, and starting with your primary care provider is, is always a good idea, at least from my standpoint. You know, I'm pretty grounded in Western medicine, very open to all of uh, the, the expanse of, of medicine, but, but that's where my background and training is, is strongest. And so seeing your primary care physician with symptoms of flu or with a rash and flu is critical if you identify those things. So if you have the rash, uh, that's enough. We're done. The diagnosis is made. We can call it Lyme disease and treat you, and hopefully that's the end of the story for you. Follow-up is always important, in my opinion, because I think you want to make sure that what you have treated is actually gone and that folks don't have lingering symptoms or develop new symptoms that might indicate there's more trouble than we thought. If it's a later presentation, then we um, start thinking about doing some testing. The testing is notoriously unreliable, especially early in the disease, because the testing that we have available at this point um, is largely around measuring the body's response to the infection, so looking at antibodies. And it takes two to six weeks for your body to start making antibodies to an infection. So, Is that considered late, treating late? Two to six weeks? Yeah. No, that's still pretty early treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, We're talking about a bacteria. Yes. Okay. So it's, and it's, um, what form is the, is this bacteria in? Is it a? It's a spirochete. And what is that? That's, uh, that's. It's a corkscrew shaped bacteria that's um, different from any other bacteria that we have. And Dr. Zantir can tell you more about the makeup of that bacteria if you want to hear that. Yeah, well, it's a pretty unique bacteria, although it's in a family of very interesting bacteria. The spirochetes generally are known for their um, slow reproductive times and difficulty in culturing. Another spirochete that people may be familiar with is the, the agent of syphilis. 
And back in the day, syphilis was called the great imitator because it could look like many other uh, disease processes, and it was difficult to figure syphilis out until we got a really better test. Um, so a lot of clinical work was done around syphilis, and once the better test developed it, it became clearer for a lot of folks um, what the whole scope of disease that uh, was possible with that infection. Well, the Lyme bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi, named for Willie Burgdorfer, a fabulous scientist who um, identified the bacteria and figured out its role in causing disease, uh, Willie has said uh, that it's to his everlasting shame that this is the one that carries his name. And that's largely because it, it really is huge in its possible impact, very much like syphilis. Lyme is the new great imitator. It can look like many other illnesses. Now, that can make people very worried and confused, but there are patterns of illness that can be identified. This is not beyond the ken of um, practicing physicians to figure out, and, and it, it just requires a careful clinical evaluation, and um, you have to suspect it. If you don't think of it, you never diagnose it. So is that happening more and more? I mean, I've, we hear of stories, and you probably can speak to that, of people being seeing 17 doctors and not getting a diagnosis at all. Is that changing? Um, it's beginning to change slowly, um, but it still is um, difficult for patients to find physicians that put the whole story and the whole symptom complex together and identify it as a single disease causing um, a multi-systemic um, presentation. So what happens um, if, if let's say you, you have gone to a, a doctor who will suspect Lyme, a Lyme literate, as we say, <laughs> perhaps, um, uh, doctor, are they going to, and we're talking in, a, in, in the Western Clinic right now, are they going to be ordering specific tests? And what, what's the value of these tests? And what are we, what are we measuring? That's a great question, Rhonda. I, I think early in disease, as we said, if you are fortunate to show up with that rash without a smoking tick, because the tick is hardly ever present at the time that the rash is identified, but if you show up with the rash, I hope they won't order tests because they're not going to be valuable at that point. My uh, my expectation would be that physicians would simply treat at that point, and and we know that that is effective. Um, later in the course of disease, if you miss that earliest opportunity where either you're presenting with rash and flu-like symptoms, but if you're showing up later, perhaps with a Bell's palsy or with a swollen knee or some other later manifestation, um, it's important that the physician suspect uh, or, or healthcare professionals suspect Lyme disease, and perhaps they will order treatment. Now, excuse me, order a test. Um, the testing that is generally recommended, unfortunately for all involved, is not particularly reliable even later in the disease. Uh, Stricker and Johnson did a nice study of what's called sensitivity and specificity of Lyme testing in the protocol that is recommended for surveillance by the CDC, um, which is a two-tiered test. There is a screening test done first, and if that's positive or iffy, then a follow-up test is done that's supposed to confirm it. Well, sensitivity of tests is the ability of a test to pick up 
the disease. So that's the big net we're throwing out to see if we can find it. What we love to see in a sensitive test is that it will overcall. We want it to pick up more cases than are truly the disease. And then the confirmatory test helps us to narrow down which of those are really the disease. And, and so the specificity is how many of those cases we've identified really are what we thought they were. Unfortunately, in Lyme testing, um, the conclusion Stricker and Johnson drew is if, if they looked at studies done across the board, the overall sensitivity of the tests are about 56%. Mm. That means we may be missing as many as, you know, what, 40 plus percent of cases of Lyme if we depend on this. Now, the specificity is great. Every case we find is, you know, 98 to 100 percent. We're, we're doing a good job. Is that the ELISA? Um, that's the combined ELISA, ELISA. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, as a screening test plus the, the confirmatory Western blot. So using the two-tiered method, unfortunately, because we do not have a sufficiently sensitive first test, we're going to end up, if we rely on testing alone, we will miss the diagnosis in a, a significant number of people. The other worry, of, of course, people have had over the years is false positive testing. Um, the data that I've seen along those lines is that if we rule out syphilis, which is a very much look-alike uh, disease with some similar um, laboratory features, if we rule that out and we have a decent test to do that, the false positive rate is about 7%. That's pretty low. No. The false negatives, though. Is about 40%. And that's a big problem. And that's pretty high. And that's, that's the problem. So if you're having a two-tier system and you have a false negative and you never get the next level of testing, that seems like a big problem. It is a problem. And that's really the importance of um, health professionals and the folks who are seeking their help, knowing the limitations of the testing that's used. Um, this has become almost a trite saying among our crowd, but uh, it's true through all of medicine. The lab can't make or rule out a diagnosis for you, not just in Lyme disease, in everything. The, the lab can support what you clinically suspect, but they really can't make the diagnosis for you, and they can't rule it out for you. So even with, let's say you've gone to the next step, the Western blot test, because these are the words we hear quite often and most most of us don't know what that means. They're looking at panels, and what do the panels represent in a Western blot test? Well, the Western, <laughs> I'll go with that, and Happy gets the next I, one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Western blot is uh, looking at the proteins that um, make up this bacteria, basically the way a Western blot is done, and who knows how people figure these things out, but they take the bacteria, some amount of it, toss it in detergent, and breaks it into a million pieces. And then somebody had this bright idea, oh, let's throw that on some agar and run electricity through it, see what happens. Well, what happens when you do that is it separates out by weight. So the proteins that make up this bacteria separate out according to weight. And we call each of those weights a band because when we add patient serum to that, if that patient makes antibody to some of those proteins, it will fix itself by weight. And then when we stain it and look at that picture, it looks like small dark bands of, of, of color. And so positive 
reactions or positive bands mean that we're finding antibodies reacting to some proteins that are on this bacteria. And are there more significant bands than others? What are we looking for? There are more significant. There's, um, they actually use about 10 different bands in the test, and some are very specific for different proteins on the bacteria, and some are more general um, and are not specific to Borrelia, but are common in all spirochetes, um, and some bands are not particularly relative. So are the tests complete? What are the bands we're looking for, and is, are, are we sure all of these are being tested for? Oh, there's a good question, too. So you've done your homework. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, on the Western blot, uh, there were established criteria. Again, this was initially set up for surveillance purposes, and, and I just need to talk a little bit about that before I yes. answer your question. The difference between a surveillance definition and a clinical definition is huge. The surveillance definition of a disease is what we are using to track trends in the population of disease activity. To that end, that definition needs to be quite restrictive because we, we do want to be sure that every case we're following is Lyme disease and not something else. So surveillance is very restrictive. Clinical diagnosis, of course, or clinical definition is much broader because there, what we're most concerned about is not missing anybody. So although the surveillance definition might inform us, it, we can't be restricted to that narrowly defined pattern when we're actually talking individual people and treatment. So the criteria in this, these lab tests were also established initially for surveillance purposes. And they were established at a time when there was um, work on a vaccine that used one of, well, there was vaccine development around two of the proteins that are very specific for this um, bacteria. And those two proteins identified as outer surface protein A and outer surface protein B reflect two bands on the Western blot, 31 and 34. In the commercial tests for um, Lyme disease, the commercially available um, Western blot tests, 31 and 34 are left out of that testing completely. So although they're specific enough to be used for vaccine development, they are no longer in commercial tests mm. used for identification of, of uh, reactivity. And some folks felt that that wasn't relevant because they didn't often show up early, but they do show up, and I should think that their presence would be important. Mm -hmm. So using um, a commercial test may limit the information that you get. Now, there are also criteria that were established for the surveillance purposes. For example, two out of three particular bands on the what's called IgM Western blot, which is the early body response, or usually thought of as early response, um, need to be present. And on the later response, called IgG, five out of ten bands. Well, I'm a kind of simple thinker. What if you have reactions to some of those other 10 on that IgM blot. Wouldn't that also be important? Well, maybe. And what if you have only four reactions on your IgG response? That would be technically negative, but if those were specific reactions, wouldn't that be important? So again, 
it's a clinical diagnosis made using judgments about the information you get. You can't allow a positive or negative to be the end of your story. That has to be where you begin and where you're looking at. Well, what does positive mean and what does negative mean? Does a positive test necessarily mean that that's the cause of your symptoms? No, a positive test tells us there's exposure to this bacteria. It's the patient and their health provider who try to figure out if that's what's going on in terms of the disease. So even if you get a negative, a, an, an educated provider would say, all right, that doesn't really rule anything out. That's, so you have to continue. It's not, okay, you don't really have this. It's, a, a negative t- test is not, not sufficient mean. to rule it out. Right. I, I think so 20% on the Western blot, the, the data shows that about 20% of the time uh, you can have what's called seronegative Lyme disease. And in fact, in the vaccine trials, the most studied population on the planet in which they used largely Western blotting, um, uh, what they reported out is that if they had relied on testing alone, they would have missed 30% of cases of definite Lyme disease in that population. And this population had tests before the, the study started. They had tests done anytime an abnormality showed up. They retested later in the course and still relying on testing alone, they would have missed 30% of cases. So that's good to know. And as if, if anyone is uh, wondering uh, what their symptoms mean and have been told, You've had a negative. You can't have Lyme disease. Okay. I just want to tell, uh, say uh, again that uh, this is Rhonda Feynman. It's Healthy Options. We are speaking with Lyme specialist Dr. Beatrice Santier and Constance Happy Dickey. We're discussing ticks and Lyme disease and other tick-borne uh, disorders that we will get to. I think we need about four hours, four <laughs> programs. We're going to have to continue doing lots of specials on this, I can tell. In your support groups, what kind of symptoms are people having that whether or not their Western blot was positive or negative. What what are you seeing? Typically in our support groups, we see people who um, have had Lyme disease for a long time and were not early diagnosed and, and er- treated early. Um, so they often have a long and difficult um, healthcare journey before they come to the conclusion um, and find a doctor who right. um, can uncover the cause of their illness and um, a lot of the people um, have are in treatment and are getting better and you know we kind of support each other along the way and there's a lot more um, that people do to care for themselves besides just the um, therapy provided or recommended by the doctor. There's a lot of supportive stuff that people What, what would do. like that be? Well, they do immune support, you know, um, diet support, um, exercise and sleep and rest and that kind of thing. So it's it's kind of helping each other learn about those different modalities. And so we're really talking about an, an immune system because you are fighting a, a bacteria on that level, and we'll get to the co-infections, which is another conversation about what you're fighting. Uh, it, um, but um, so we're, we're talking about eating well, sleeping, low stress, talking exercise, Talking about taking better lifestyle. care of yourself than you've ever taken care of yourself before. Lifestyle. Exactly. And we're also talking, you know, possibly herbal aspects as, as well. And we should talk about treatment a little bit and what, what in this purview um, we're, um, 
be maybe Dr. Santier, we can, you know, what what would you do? Or I know you're not in clinical practice at the moment, but what would a, a provider do? Antibiotics, antibiotics, okay. antibiotics, <laughs> and a few other things. <laughs> okay. So um, you would start with uh, anything in particular? What other, and, and how do you choose them? Because this is so controversial, and as possibly with some of our listeners, but, um, you know, why... We, we hear about one kind, we, then we hear about combinations. Why would somebody make those kinds of decisions? Well, very good questions. There are more than one uh, set of treatment guidelines at this point. But, you know, guidelines are just that, guidelines. And, and they give us a starting point, but they aren't the end point for consideration. It really needs to be individualized care. Um, uh, lots of medicine happens in the public health arena, but... When it comes down to treating a disease, it's 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 one on one, and it's very it needs to be individualized for the patient. Still, we can allow things to inform us in this. Um, it, for early Lyme disease, uh, that is, say we're we're treating someone who who does have uh, an erythema migrans rash, which is the name of the rash of Lyme disease, uh, with flu-like symptoms or without, then. Uh, most antibiotics would work pretty well, and often the choice that we make is for one of the tetracycline-related antibiotics. Uh, typically, doxycycline is a, is a good first choice if you're older than eight and can tolerate it. Um, the nice thing about doxycycline is it's not only active against uh, the Lyme bacteria, but also against a couple of the potential uh, other travelers in the same ticks. So it works uh, a, a double and that's uh, what job. the... Or, or, or Lichia or, or Anaplasma group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very active against that. Um, uh, alternatively, yeah. you can use uh, amoxicillin, although that won't be active against your Lichia. Uh, the only antibiotic that has ever been uh, FDA-approved for use in early Lyme disease is actually called Cefuroxime Axetil. How's that? Mm. Its trade name is Ceftin. Nobody paid oh. me to say that, but I just did. Um, and And... But, of course, in the studies that it got approval in, it was tested against doxycycline and amoxicillin. So most of uh, those antibiotics work well. Those are, are active particularly in the cell wall or intracellular space. So I think it, so it's, it really has to do with where the antibiotic is targeted. Yeah. So how long would someone have to be on that? Well... Funny you should ask. Uh, in the literature, you can find recommendations uh, for as short a time as 10 days out, as long a time as six weeks. Um, the reality is that no one has done the study yet to tell us how long is enough. Um, there, there are a number of studies that try to approach that, but there has not been a study that, that clearly tells us what the, the right treatment time is. So... Um, through years of experience and based on the microbiology of this bacteria, which is a slow grower, um, its doubling time is somewhere between 12 and 24 hours, making it a lot more like the bacteria that cause leprosy and tuberculosis than it is like the bacteria that cause strep throat or urinary tract infections. Those bacteria, the strep and urinary tract infection bacteria, double in 15 to 30 minutes. Wow. And so we're talking about 12 to 24 hours versus 15 to 30 minutes. That might influence how long uh, you need to be exposed to the antibiotic for it to be effective. And in fact, some of the early studies by Luft suggested that if you treat 
what's most important is the duration of treatment as opposed to how high the level of the antibiotic gets so potency, in your system. Are you talking about potency? So, uh, you might talk about it as potency, um, but, but duration. So an extended time of treatment may be more important than how high the blood levels of the antibiotic oh, get. Oh, I see. Okay. Although the blood levels have some importance as well. So the superdose so. is not effective possibly, but oh. we don't know. Oh, I wouldn't say it's not effective. The question is, is it the most important part? Well, uh, you know, is that necess- is it necessary to get a super level or can we can we do? And and I don't have the answer to that. Right. All I know is that the early studies suggested it was duration that was most so crucial. So I'm remembering uh, being on Martha's Vineyard, and one, one of our party had a tick bite. We called because they have a, a rampant um, problem. Yeah. Um, they said do the one dose, 200 milligrams, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm from what you're saying, that's not so effective. Well, looking at tick bite is a little different from looking at treating disease. Okay. So we can, but but I'm glad to talk about that, and I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because we're seeing lots of tick bites right now, and, and folks really need to know. And it, it has become adopted as rather common practice in emergency departments right now to give that single dose of doxycycline, and I understand why folks want to. I even understand uh, why they believe it's a good idea. It is one of the recommendations that's put forth in the Infectious Disease Society of America's clinical guidelines. And unfortunately, it, it's, I don't think it stands well as a recommendation. It's based on a single study. The study was not carried out long enough to see if um, prevention of late disease was achieved. And importantly, what was used as the the marker for effectiveness was the development of a rash after tick bite. Oops, we already know that not everyone develops a rash. So, right. so it, it it's okay. it's got problems. And if you couple that with what we know about the microbiology of the organism, you start to wonder if it makes sense. And add to that that there was a study have been several studies of ten days of an antibiotic for tick bite and. We were unable to demonstrate any effectiveness in preventing Lyme disease there. So, if ten days doesn't do it, does it really make sense that one dose will do it? Right. Not okay. so much. Not so much. Now, so is there harm to doing that? Maybe. Um, although that single dose of doxycycline may not go on to prevent the development of late manifestations, it can turn off antibody production. Early antibiotics can turn off the body's production of antibodies. So now six weeks later when you're sick as a dog and we go to look to see if you're making antibodies against this bacteria, oops, negative test. Ah, so you've, ah, so there it is. So that also starts adding to what you're seeing in the support groups and with actual real, real people. Yeah. And in the field and why it's so frustrating. Because right. then the you've actually created it zero negative. They're not Well, we can do that. You have created that and therefore oh, but you can't this can't be that because look. Because you're and then okay, so now we have that, that reasoning. So we are looking at a clinical diagnosis and we are probably looking for a longer term um idea of treatment. 
in addition to what you're saying is with all of the things to support the immune system and to support the person lifestyle. And I also want to bring up something else that I've been reading about and that some people test for. And um, let's see if we can find this. The um, part of the immune system, what is it? The, um, where am I? Here it is. Ah, see? Never you never do this as a first time. There it is. The CD fifty seven test. Doesn't that have to do with the immune system? Yes, uh, CD fifty seven natural killer cell test. It's actually um, the particular test that you're referring to is the non B cell CD fifty seven subset. So Sub it's a specific subset of the test. natural killer cells. Yeah. yeah, and it can get confusing um, because there are two ways to look at this, but that was uh, a fairly recently described uh, immune system test, which has been correlated with late stage Lyme disease. Again, not specific for it, but it appears that individuals who have had Lyme disease for a long period of time um, tend to have a low uh, CD57 natural killer cell subset. Um, so what's normal? What's, what's if, you, if you don't have Lyme disease? What what numbers would you see? Two hundred, three hundred, something like it's greater than two hundred. Right. I would have to right now. You know, have that, that and, in and, front of me. And so, someone with Lyme who's been compromised, right? The, the immune yeah. system it would be much lower. Exactly. Under sixty. Often, often it's much 57 lower. Fifty-seven. I've seen for yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. So that's also an indication. Is it if it's going up? It's telling you that you're that you're do, getting better. Is that? Or is that is it used that way or not quite a perfect correlation? Okay. No, uh, yeah. often it individuals uh, who are recovering get better and better long before their their CD fifty seven uh, recovers, and uh, you know there are only a few studies that have really looked at this so far. So I I think we're still early in our understanding of how this goes. But the thing that I have seen um, practitioners use this for in prediction is whether it's a good moment to stop antibiotics. It has been suggested that if the CD57 natural killer subset does not recover to a normal level um, and you stop antibiotics, you are much more likely to have um, a relapse of disease. So you can use it for relapse, the idea of... To, well, to predict to relapse predict, if you predict. stop antibiotics. Right. So, mm, tricky. Yeah, it's all tricky, and that's what the, the amorphous. So, you, so you you get a tick bite, which it, many of us right here in this room have. Uh, <laughs> it's me. <laughs> I I, I uh, invited uh, Dr. Santier and Happy on to the show, and then went out and and did primary research, <laughs> and and found a tick on my very own self. Now. And as when I, I called thee immediately, or my yes. new my new contact on a Sunday, no less, and said, "What do I do?" And then you said something to the effect of, "Well, there it is. We're not talking theory anymore, are we?" Yeah. And and that's it. So what are what 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 do you do? And what are the choices? What was my choice? Well, the tick. I had the. I saw the tick. I had to figure out how to remove the tick. And first, I had these uh, tick removers that I got at one of the talks that I think Happy was there, and it did not work. I, I, it was absolutely, it almost created domestic, um, you know, <laughs> divorce, uh, <laughs> trying to get this off. 
and it kept slipping through. So okay. we did do the, uh, the, you know, we could talk about the absolute proper tick removal, which was, I knew, tick um, removal. Maybe you could talk to <laughs> us about tick removal. I can. Um, it is important and how you remove a tick. Um, you can make a, a pretty innocent tick bite into a, a risky tick bite if you do improper removal. The basic premise is you don't want to do anything to disturb the body of the tick where the bacteria is contained in the midgut. So you don't want to squeeze the tick. You don't want to annoy the tick with um, hot matches or soaps like Dawn dish detergent or Vaseline or alcohol. You want to leave the body of the tick alone and you want to approach the tick with a pair of um, fine point tweezers or there are a number of tick removal tools on the market that can be helpful and grab the tick by the mouth parts underneath the body and pull firmly and steadily up and out. The tick will um, come out hard. It doesn't want to let go of um, you. So you want to just pull firmly until it pops out. If you have a, a live intact tick when you remove it and if it's been on there for a short period of time, meaning under 8 or 12 hours, then you probably um, have a pretty low risk um, tick attachment. If you break the tick, you squeeze the tick or you annoy the tick, um, then everything becomes more complicated and your chance of obtaining a disease from that tick is, is the risk is higher at that point. So I w I'm here to tell you when we when I pulled that tick out, that tick did not want to move. Yeah. And there was an audible sound that we could hear, <laughs> you know, from three feet away of that tick coming out. And I did get the whole, the whole body. I was, thank you, very, I'm getting the, the high five from, from Dee over here. Um, and then, if we, well, what do I do? Now, by the way, there are pictures of this um, on um, some of the links that, and we can talk about what these links are, uh, but you can go to the Facebook, if, uh, www.facebook.com, the WERU-FM -E page, and you don't have to be a member of Facebook to go see these links, and we'll talk about what these links are as well. I have them here um, so that you can, uh, you can actually get a picture of this. But... Um, but once you have it, and I had no idea, I thought I was doing good tick checks, and I did, and then there was this tick. Um, so what, what, what my, my, then everybody is in the position, well, what do we do now? Do I decide to, um, do I decide to take medication of some sort? Do I do doxycycline? I started, I chose to do some Chinese herbs at the moment, and then sent, at your recommendation, sent the tick off on an all-expense-paid trip, <laughs> one-way ticket, to California to a lab, Igenics, where they are testing the tick for all the bacteria, for Babiosia. We didn't talk about that. And I didn't have them do Ehrlichia. Now I'm, I'm losing sleep over that. I mean, you can <laughs> tell me. But I think this is the reality. Yeah. You know, we can have all this great information and go, should I, should I? Sp and it, this was not cheap, by the way. No. You know, $65 for each everybody's not going to have, you know, be able to do that or choose right. to do that. So there I was, a regular, you know, all of a sudden, forget any kind of professional. It was like, oh, my goodness. Now it's happening to me. Now <laughs> here it is. Chances of it, 100%. Right. Oh, right. no.
Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up some really interesting questions, and um, whether to send the tick for testing at all is is really a question and a decision um, if it's attached to you. We don't know uh, in each individual tick whether it's carrying any infections. You know, the infection rate that we use across the state is 50 percent. But that 50% isn't a real number. That's based on some areas having a tick rate of infection of 80%, while you know two miles down the road it might be 5%. The problem is we can't know with each individual tick how likely it is to be carrying a disease. So what we use to, to guide our judgments are how, how risky was this attachment? Was the tick attached long enough to transmit infection? And, what is long enough? It used to be that uh, everyone agreed uh, 72 hours had to be attached, 72 hours. Well, yeah, at 72 hours, every tick that's carrying infection will have transmitted. So you could be pretty sure if it, if it was, it did. But how do you judge that? And in fact, the recommendation in the guidelines is for a tick that, a nymphal tick that has been attached for, that is obviously engorged and treated within 72 hours. That's a very specific recommendation that I'm sure is not making its way into actual practice, even when the antibiotic is given as a single dose. I'm not sure that it's being given in that way. But we've come back from 72 hours to now, okay, well, 36 hours. Well, and now it's down to 24 hours that folks are recommending. Is 24 hours safe? Well, it's relatively safe. Uh, it takes time for this process to occur. You know, the, the bacteria starts out in the mid-gut of the tick, and as it feeds, um, the bacteria multiplies and gets up into the salivary gland. So you do have some time. So as Happy points out, careful, uh, proper, timely removal can save you a world of, of, of worry. And that's why the t doing the tick check really does count, because you're doing it once a day, so you're going to identify that tick. But is 24 hours an absolute? Well, no. It's not that no transmission happens before 24 hours, but pretty low likelihood. And we can increase the likelihood by complicating the tick removal. We haven't talked a lot about the co-infections, but we know that Ehrlichia, for example, can be transmitted in less than, less than 24 hours and sometimes even in less than eight hours. I have seen cases of Lyme disease transmitted in four hours with a complicated tick removal. And by that, I just mean there were no identifiable body parts left of the tick when they got done. Um, so the possibility that tick guts were spilled was high. The other thing that's being looked at is what about tick feces? As ticks feed, they also poop. Sorry to tell you, but they do. Um, do we have to worry about what's being transmitted in that? So that starts at the beginning of the 24 hours. So there are lots of, of features mm -hmm. that enter in. But all of that said, the, the longer the tick is attached, the greater the risk of its ability to transmit infection. Sending it off for testing might allow you to live more comfortably with the decision you make about whether to treat or not to treat. If you decide that this is a relatively low-risk bite, short-duration attachment, happy tick when you're done, um, you can decide to, to wait and, and watch and see if symptoms develop. What do we mean by symptoms? Well, I mean, the possibility of a rash. A little redness at the site of a tick attachment, eraser-sized redness at the time of the bite, and for 24 hours thereafter, nobody gets worried about, we assume that that is a reaction to the tick itself. After 24 hours, or at any point if it begins to expand, we have to believe that that is erythema migrans. Typically, the rash of Lyme disease de develops within 3 to 30 days 
of the tick attachment. Um, but I call it after 24 hours because I've seen it develop that soon. And in fact, once in a while, we see erythema migrans develop with tick in place. That's pretty wow. uncommon. But boy, that gets your attention when it happens. Very rare to see that happen. So um, duration of, of the attachment matters. And the decision to watch and wait should be based on it being a low, low likelihood to attachment. Do you have to send the tick off to get it uh, tested for what's in it? No. But if you choose to do that, it might make you feel better if the tick tests negative for, for Lyme disease or the co-infections. You might feel more comfortable about your decision. Um, if it tests positive, you might feel a little more anxious about your decision. But still, in a low-time attachment, low-risk bite, would you do anything different? No, but now you've got information about what was there. So it can be helpful. There's been a big discussion of this on many of the groups that I'm involved in, actually, mm -hmm. whether testing for what's in the tick helps you. Mm -hmm. Now, testing by PCR of a whole tick is actually a pretty darn good test, as opposed to PCR done for a person where we're testing a small amount of blood um, out of your total volume of blood for an infection that's unlikely to be in your blood anyway. So that's a DNA test. A DNA test, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So, But when we do a whole organism, if we take the whole tick and test, we, we have a pretty good chance well, of finding it if it's there. Well, my feeling was, as a, now I'm speaking as a, as a uh, tick bite survivor, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, I, um, <laughs> that, you know, taking antibiotics for many of us is a big deal. Yeah. I don't think I've taken antibiotics in years. Yeah. So if I'm going to do this, I really want to know if I can that I really need to do this. Right. And in the meantime, I did Tuang Chi. I did a astragalus. I did things to increase my immune system. I happen to know that that herb also increases some of the uh, immune tonics in our bodies. And then I did something called allicin, which is a very, very high garlic, which is uh, – so I – you know, right. was like a natural a, antibiotic. Felt natural antibiotic yeah. and felt, you know, smelled like um, a, 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 an Italian dinner that had gone bad. But it was still worth it for me to do that. Somebody else might have said, I'm doing the doxycycline right now. Yeah. And I'm going to do, do it for six weeks. I'm going to do it for three weeks. I'm, I'm that. So we have to understand that you, those. If you do daily tick checks right. and are faithful about that, then you, you always keep your tick attachment time. Low, low and really reduce the risk. So prevention. Oh. Prevention, so prevention, prevention, prevention. let's talk about, uh, a little bit about prevention. If people, you know, go out in the woods and, or in their backyard even or, you know. Most what? tick bites are, are acquired within your home property. It's, you know, right. you don't have to go very far. Okay. So what are you recommending these days in terms of insecticides and um, clothing and all that good stuff? Being aware of tick environments, tick habitats, is helpful for you to know where to avoid and, and how to prepare yourself to enter into leaf litter and woodsy um, areas. We're not probably going to stay out of those areas um, on the whole, but if you're prepared to go in, um, and that is covering your skin as much as possible, wearing long pants, light-colored pants, so you can see the dark-colored ticks, tucking your pants into your socks, 
tucking your shirt into your pants and wearing long sleeves, then you have very little skin exposed. And on that exposed skin, you can put um, a DEET product is the gold standard. At least 23% up to about 35 is all that's necessary. Any more than that is overkill and not more effective. Um, on your clothing, you can spray a tick killer agent called Promethrin. That product is sprayed on your clothes. Um, anything with fabric can be hat, neckerchiefs, shirts, pants, shoes. Let it dry and then that will last through five or six washings. Um, so that And that's a tick killer. So that's another layer of protection. There are a couple of other agents that we can use in place of DEET for people who prefer not to use that, um, even though it has a very safe um, record for the last 60 years. Avon, I, I can hear my uh, some listeners going, I just can't. Be here. <laughs> I know. Can't, no, Avon Bugguard Plus Expedition at 15% um, has been proven to be as safe um, or as effective as DEET. And then there's another new product called um, Picaridin, which is also proven to be as safe as DEET. It, Picaridin um, smells nicer, and people with chemical sensitivities tend to um, tolerate that a little bit better. For people who prefer or would like to use natural products, there is not a lot of information available on the effectiveness of natural products. If there is any information available, it usually is that it's a very short term. It can be from 15 minutes to an hour that some of the oil products um, are effective. And that really is not um, very conducive to, you know, being outside and, and having to reapply that stuff every few minutes is, mm. is not probably going to work for you. Mm. Okay. And we're, we're looking right now for some of those websites so we can say them right out loud. But you can also go to the, if you're online, you can go to facebook.com and the WERU-FM. So it's www.facebook.com slash WERU-FM. And you don't have to be on Facebook to see those links right now, but I want to give them to you so that, uh, which, which I will in a minute. But I have to tell you, when I was out there, <clears throat> I, you know, I was taught, I had the param, I didn't have the paramethium. I had the, uh, what was the last, the, the newer? Picaridin. Yes, I had that. And then I had my socks over my clothes and I had the hat and I had the gloves. I looked, you know, Nothing's like a SWAT team. 100%. And then I'm passing people on the trail, literally in shorts and flip-flops. Mm. And I'm and I'm thinking, I'm feeling a little bit self-satisfied and self, <laughs> you know, look at me. And then I go home and there it is. So just to and show. And did your tick check. But I did but my tick check. But you did your tick check, okay. which is crucial, right? Full, everywhere. Full body naked tick check at the end of the day. Grab those clothes, toss them in the dryer if you have one on high heat. Ticks don't like it moist. Uh, excuse me. Ticks don't like it uh, hot and dry. dry. They like it moist. So you throw your clothes in the dryer on high heat, kill them. Then you can wash them. Kill them first. Um, <laughs> right. And, and then it, some folks recommend taking a shower. There's actually a study done that says taking a shower helps. But the reason taking a shower helps is because you're feeling everywhere for, for a tick. You have to look and feel. These are small ticks, generally speaking. N no tick is your friend. But the ticks that carry Lyme and, and related uh, bacteria are relatively small. The nymph, which is active at this time of year, pretty much uh, May through uh, mid-July, 
with a little bit of uh, leeway on either end, is about the size of a poppy seed. It's going to be very difficult to just see that, but if you're feeling, especially in the hot spots, which is where ticks like to get, they want to get a good blood meal. They're just trying to be good animals. So they're going to go to the hot spots, behind the knee and the groin, um, at the waistband, at the bra line, in the armpits, in the neck, behind the ears and along the scalp line. But you have to look and feel everywhere. If you find a new bump have so- and it's in a place you can't see readily, have someone else look and see if that bump has legs. Try not to panic. Don't annoy the tick. Never annoy the tick. Never annoy Never. the tick. You just, it just makes it throw up, and nobody wants that. No. So, so uh, you know, I tell my clients to have a good time, you know. Have t- fun with tick checks. I hear Garrison <laughs> Keillor stole my joke. And he said that uh, there are many people who owe their very existence to tick checks. <laughs> so we can make this. Uh, doesn't have to be a dire experience. We have a few minutes, so I want to do a quick uh, fill in, you know, uh, see if we can do this. Uh, okay. This is the, uh, you know, quick lightning fill in the blank. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> to see if we can get, uh, or these are the main points. Just chime in, okay. and everyone at home, be quick. Ticks have to be on you for at least 24 hours or 36 hours to transmit disease. True false. Or false. False. Okay, it takes blank hours for a tick to transmit Lyme or another tick disease. Oh, my goodness. Okay, every tick needs bite needs treatment. True or false? False. Mm, okay. You need to have a bullseye rash to confirm that you have Lyme. False. One, only female tricks ticks tra- transmit disease. I'm terrible at this. Okay. Only female ticks transmit disease. So it's in iri- it's uh, important to find out whether you've been bitten by a male or female tick. What do we know? We don't, don't know. know. We're not sure about male ticks. I don't know. Okay. I've read that. All right. Don't we don't know. know. A single dose of doxycycline antibiotics should be the first treatment if you know you've been bitten by a tick. False. 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 In my opinion. I'll, I'll lay it out there. In, in my opinion. opinion. In Happy's opinion. <laughs> okay. No. Tick diseases can be carried in vitro to newborns. We didn't talk about that, but that is true, so be careful. If you have a strong immune system, you can kick out the Lyme bacteria on your own without antibiotics. Ah, Um, that's it. Okay, that's another conversation. Mm, We'll have that. All right. Lyme disease may have to go away on its own if you don't have symptoms. It'll go away on its own if you don't have symptoms. Don't think so. Get treated somehow, some manner, shape, or form. We're running out of time here, and I cannot believe we're, you're going you're gonna to have to come back. This is the open <laughs> invitation, so I want to get into, you know, some other ideas, but I think we've, uh, we've covered a lot um, that will help people. This is um, um, any, any parting words, I anything? just want to um, oh. tell people about MainLime.org, which is our um, nonprofit website um, and organization. On our website, we have information about tick-borne diseases. We have a paper called I Have a Tick Bite, What Do I Do Now?, which helps people decide how they're going to approach this. And we have a calendar which lists all of our support group um, meetings, when they are and where they are, and who to contact for more information. On that calendar, we also have all of our um, activities where we're presenting information, doing TikToks um, or attending health fairs, that kind of thing. If people are looking for doctors who can help them, are they, is that on that list as well? Or I know um, this Usually is... contacting support groups um, is the best way to get information. Well, that's great. That. Thank you so much, mm-hmm. Dr. Beatrice Santier and uh, Constance Happy Dickey have been my guests here on Healthy Options. We've been talking about ticks and uh, Lyme disease and prevention and just 
no pun intended, scratching, scratching. the surface. <laughs> this is uh, WERU, <laughs> and we're going to continue this conversation, and ticks are everywhere this year. Be careful, do your tick checks. Um, I want to thank Amy Brown for engineering, Petra Hall for her co-production skills. Um, my colleague Cynthia Swan has done a show on uh, Lyme as well that's on the archives, WERU archives, and this will be archived as well to listen uh, at, at a later date. Thank you so much, and uh, more to follow. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press.